The Optometry Talks podcast series is brought to you by Optometry New South Wales ACT, your peak professional body. Welcome to episode five of Optometry Talks, the first 90 days, avoiding common pitfalls as a new graduate optometrist. I'm Andrew McKinnon, CEO of Optometry New South Wales ACT, and today I'll be talking with our two staff optometrists, Paula Catalinic and Audrey Malloy, about the traps for young players when it comes to starting your professional career as an optometrist. Audrey and Paula, good morning. How are you? Good morning, Andrew. Hi, Andrew. Um, Audrey, let's start with you. There's all sorts of traps a young optometrist can fall into. Is it possible to categorise them? Uh, thanks, Andrew. Yes, I, I'm sure there are lots of ways to categorise these issues. And Paula and I have had a chance to talk about this a little in advance, and we feel there are five main issues that crop up over and over during these early months. And they are a lack of preparation, lack of confidence, maintaining professional standards, lack of experience, and prescribing issues. Okay, that's, a, that's an interesting list. Um, let's start at the top. You mentioned lack of preparation. What do you mean by that? And how can an early career optometrist prepare po- properly for practice? Well, preparation is essential before you start working at a practice. And I know from experience as, uh, working as a locum and also um, working in a practice in the country uh, as my first position, um, it's particularly important to prepare if you're working in a practice, a new practice for the very first time. So I'd recommend going in early at least or even a day before to have a look around the practice and understand what kind of equipment they've got in the practice, for instance, um, how things work on the ground, who to hand over to. Um, so there's lots of different things you might want to look at. Firstly, what equipment do you have and what don't you have? Do they have an automated field analyzer? Um, do they have automated tonometry or is it, is it going to be Goldman tonometry? So just understanding what uh, tests you have at your fingertips, even color vision for kids and things, just looking through the drawers and knowing what you've got at hand. The other one that I found really difficult was knowing the medical record system. So it might be Optimate or Sunix, but it might be something else completely different, which you haven't come across before. Um, And there's no excuse for not recording something just because you don't know the medical record system. So that's not going to fly with Medicare. So just uh, understanding how to navigate through the medical record and where to record things um, is certainly worthwhile before you have your first patient. Also take the time to get to know the roles of the various staff and their names so that when you hand over, you're not kind of handing over to a person who you don't know their name um, and kind of know what, what they're comfortable doing in terms of handing over for dispensing. Um, are they comfortable Medicare, billing the Medicare and what have you? Um, so all of that's essential for good customer service. Yeah, and look, I think this also, preparation really applies in your regular place of practice as well. So um, clinical practice is an area where the new optometrists have had a lot of training, but it can just be the little things that unravel them in preparing for a day. And one of the best tips I could give is to do your preparation before you even lay eyes on the patient or call them into your consulting room. So before you see your first patient of the day, get in early enough to spend at least 10 minutes reviewing all the patients booked in for the whole day. And so you have a look at their name. If it's an unfamiliar name, can you pronounce it? Or do they use a nickname or a shortened name? You might even have to Google it to find out how to say it properly. Have a look at their age, um, if and when they were last here at the practice, why they were last here. It it may be that they were only here a week ago for a full eye test and they're just back today to have their pressures tested again. Have a look at their previous referral letters, the last correspondence from... Um, their ophthalmologist if they have one and why they were sent there in the first place. 
you can have a look at the scans of previous imaging so you have a really good understanding of what's going on clinically. Then have a look at the pre-test results from the day that they're here for their, for their appointment. Um, is there a huge difference in their autorefraction from their last pair of glasses? Have they had any recent surgery? And are there any other notes that you should know about? Sometimes there may have been some issue, some dispute with the patient that's good to know about. So if you're across all of this stuff before you even meet them, you're, you're halfway there. So you can't just rock up to work at 9 a.m. if your first patient is scheduled for 9 a.m. If the practice only opens at nine, then you need to explain to your employer that you're going to need time at the start of the day to prepare properly for your patients. And it only takes five to 10 minutes to do this essential step. Great advice. It's certainly something that I've come across many times over the years and being ready for the day is, is critical. Um, Paula, what about referring patients? Yeah, it's not something they can teach you at university, knowing who to refer to in your particular local area. So it's something you do need to do your research on before you start working in a particular location. And that's even more difficult if you're working as a locum or shifting around at different practices. So you have even more research to do. Um, so we've re previously recorded a podcast on locuming and the particular challenges that locums face. Um, but it's just as uh, you know, daunting for new grads in a practice location. So some of the things you'd want to consider are, firstly, where are you going to send an emergency patient? I think that's critical because if you happen to have that, that emergency on that day, um, you really need to know where to send them. Um, know which ophthalmologists work in the area. And so in a country area, you might have a fairly limited pool of ophthalmologists. Um, and you need to know what their specialties are. So one of the, the onus is on us to decide uh, who the most appropriate specialist is to refer to for any particular patient. And if you're working in a resource-strained area, such as in a country practice, um, my, my experience is that they really appreciate if you understand the urgency of the referral. So, for instance, the very first week I was working in Albury, I, I looked in and saw a very large blot hemorrhage in one of my diabetic patient's eyes and I absolutely freaked out and made sure that they got in today. That, that was not appreciated by the ophthalmologist who said, you know, that really could have waited. And so it's important to kind of read the letters back from the ophthalmologist and learn from your mistakes. We're all going to make them. Um, but they, they were able to subtly hint that maybe next time this wasn't a completely urgent referral. <laughs> um, so I, de I definitely didn't make that mistake again. Uh, also, if you don't have a particular piece of equipment in your practice, such as an OCT or standard, you know, automated perimeter, uh, is there an optometrist nearby that you could refer to perhaps that had, might have the equipment? Um, and finally, just understanding the public hospital system in your area, if there is one, or if you're in a country area, it may be that some of the private ophthalmologists are offering public ophthalmology services by bulk billing. Um, but what would be the process to actually refer them as a bulk bill patient? And what are the waiting times that your patient might be expecting um, to get into those services? Um, next thing that I would highly suggest is that if you're going to be working in a particular location for a while, you should set up a meeting with your local GP uh, in advance to talk about the services you're going to be offering. And also just kind of make, help them understand um, how you practice. So you might be doing a lot of uh, atropine treatment for myopia so they might be seeing patients who are on drops atropine drops and you might want to keep them in the loop there yeah i found that you you, you it depends on the type of patients you're seeing and how you practice but if you for example have a dry eye practice and you're prescribing and, and you, you want to put your patient on something like an oral medication like doxycycline you need a gp to write that script 
And if the patient just arrives at the GP with a, with a, a note saying, um, please prescribe doxycycline, if they've never met you and they don't know how you practice, quite often mm-hmm. they can you know, sort of scratch their head and wonder what's going on here or maybe even send the patient to an ophthalmologist, which is potentially embarrassing and, and unnecessary for the, for the patient. So having that meeting in advance to say, look, I see a lot of dry eye patients. I sometimes put them on doxycycline or acyclovir and occasionally you'll see a patient showing up with a a request for for a script for that, Mm -hmm. then that can offset that type of embarrassing situation where um, where, where, it breaks down because they just don't understand how you practice. Exactly. And that can also apply to pharmacy. We had a patient, um, well, a patient of one of our member optometrists recently who had their um, script for atropine rejected because it was for amblyopia therapy and the pharmacist was only kind of familiar with using atropine for myopia mm. progression. Um, so they were you know, unfamiliar with that percentage, uh, the 1% atropine being um, a potential treatment for amblyopia and it was rejected. So if you go down and have a chat to your pharmacist and tell them about the types of things that you'll be doing with your patients, it makes um, it smoother for the, for the patient. Yeah, and, and just on that one, um, that was one where the association was able to help by getting in touch with the pharmacist and then the pharmacist was happy with it and all was good. So again, that's another way we, we can assist if someone might not be comfortable talking to the pharmacist for whatever reason. Mm-hmm. Um, can I just take you back, Paul, uh, Paul just take you back to referrals and, and the referrals we make um, to all sorts of practitioners. Um, they can be a source of trouble for people. Um, what are the sorts of things that can crop up with referrals? You've got to set realistic expectations about referrals and the out-of-pocket expenses that might be incurred. So unless you're referring through the public system, you want to explain you know, that they're going to have a bill at the end of the consultation. And that's okay if they have the disease because they, they know that they're, you know, that's confirmed with the ophthalmologist, but they can get really upset if they're given the all clear and they'll kind of return to you and say, hang on, nothing was actually wrong. You just wasted my money. Yeah, I've had that experience actually. Um, the first, maybe the first month that I started practice, quite a long time ago now, I wouldn't want to tell you how long ago, um, I referred a couple of patients for um, significant copying of their optic disc to a, to a glaucoma specialist. And I got practically attacked, or certainly verbally attacked by one of the patients a couple of weeks later because they'd been to the ophthalmologist and found that they, they didn't have glaucoma or the ophthalmologist didn't think that they had glaucoma and that they had um, shelled out all this money and then for no reason. Mm-hmm. And while I was licking my wounds and recovering from that, almost probably the next day or the day after, another patient came in with her mother and with, with the flowers and said, um, I had saved her mother's sight because I had referred her to the same glaucoma specialist and she did have glaucoma and they would be forever grateful. So you can't let patients' reactions put you off sending a, 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 refer- a referral to the appropriate specialist, but it is really a really good idea to give them some sort of expectation on why you're referring them and what the chances are of them having this particular disease and that there will be some costs incurred. Absolutely. I also think be prepared for patients who are in denial or are struggling with their diagnosis. They might, it might be difficult for them to take on board straight away that they do need a referral. Mm-hmm. Um, I had that just yesterday with a patient who progressed 10 diopters from their, their cataract um, and they were still asking, you know, oh, do I really need to go and be seen and is it ripe enough and what have you. They, she was in total denial. It might take a few discussions, maybe even schedule them to come back in and discuss it at a later time when they've had time to absorb it. Um, the other thing to be um, 
just to be aware of is translators um, who are family members. So they can often kind of deliver uh, deliver the diagnosis in a more toned down way that you would than you would you know understand, and you don't know what's being said to the patient. They might not want to scare their elderly relative, for instance. Um, so there are other translating services that you can use on uh, over the phone services um, that you can use to assist with translating if you're not confident that the family member is able to translate properly or if it's a fairly serious condition for instance you might want to consider a phone translating service. Paula that, that's a really good point. Um, let's jump off to another topic if we may. Um, Audrey you mentioned a lack of confidence as an issue with new graduates. What sort of issues are you thinking of? Well, Andrew, one of the annoying things about being a new grad is that, patient, is that the, your patients think that you look young and they may not place 100% confidence in you as their practitioner. So I, I was talking to an, an optometrist recently who's in her 60s now who told me she used to wear half-eyes, half-eye glasses when she first graduated to make herself look older. Um, so it's a common problem, I think, especially with women, and um, they can, it can be assumed that they're, they're still students or that they don't have the experience. And look, a lot of this bias can be overcome by showing your confidence in your abilities. And um, you can really rattle a patient's confidence in you by asking them basic questions that you could easily find out from their file. So coming back to what we were talking about earlier, know who you're seeing and why they're there. Um, were they ever referred uh, by you or someone else at the practice? And knowing all of this and talking to them about it in a way that shows you're familiar with their details helps to put them at ease. Yeah, I also find that if you've got, they'll sometimes tell the person doing the order or a fraction or the, the photo at the start of the consultation, um, some of the history. So just make sure there's a, a good handover between uh, the technician and yourself so that you're not actually asking the same things twice or you might want to build on what they told you rather and so that you look quite knowledgeable about what's going on. Um, in terms of confidence, um, even if you're feeling completely unconfident, um, you still need to kind of act confident, which is which is tricky. Which is, you always try to maintain an air of confidence. Um, and also just I always found it very um, very helpful to dress very professionally. That they just kind of for some reason that makes people respect you make sure your phone's turned off not on the desk beside you and beeping away um, and I just think that if you feel more confident your patient will be a bit more relaxed and you're kind of halfway there what about building patient rapport yeah so some of it comes back to what we've just talked about but it's, it's important that you don't jump straight into the examination um, spend a minute or two talking to them just Building that rapport might be just kind of understanding where they work and um, you know other things about them that might might be important when you're prescribing glasses, for instance. Um, we want to make sure that we know their history beforehand, but it's, it doesn't hurt to kind of re-ask it in a in a different form. So I find that if they've filled out a written history, often they won't be they won't fully disclose their medical history. They're just not comfortable writing it down. But when once you've built rapport, they'll actually tell you things that you they didn't really want to write down. So maybe they didn't want to write down that they were HIV positive and on a range of medications or that they'd had a heart attack and stents inserted. Um, so once you've built rapport, you can kind of revisit the medical history and you will probably find out inevitably things that you weren't written down. I also find it really helpful to kind of explain briefly the tests as you're doing them, just make them feel very comfortable and to understand why each of the tests is being conducted. 
don't do it in a really technical way, but it just tends to relax the patients and make them more confident with why you're doing what you're doing. Um, do recommend kind of avoiding uh, engaging in highly controversial topics. It's great to have a chat, but if they're starting to talk about you know controversial topics like abortion or something like that, just bring it back to the test, um, politely redirecting them, and that that's uh, usually a better way to go. <laughs> they can also completely misunderstand jokes, so just use um, sarcasm and and uh, humour cautiously in, in the examination because some, sometimes it just doesn't go down well, and I can say that from experience. <laughs> <laughs> So telling them you think Donald Trump is the world's greatest president might not be the might way not to be the best thing. Open, the, exactly. uh, open the conversation. <laughs> um, I'll just finish that section by saying that um, no matter who's sitting, almost no matter who's sitting in your chair, you know massively more about eye care than they do. So be confident. There's, <laughs> they're not going to challenge you in the vast majority of cases. Um, Paula, we talked earlier on about keeping good records and, and you and Audrey and I have... Uh, come across that many, many times. What, what advice can you give in that? Keeping clinical, uh, good clinical records is all part of maintaining the professional standards. So we're always wanting to um, have good clinical records because it's going to be your best defence in the event of an audit. For and, and let's face it, most of us are going to go through some kind of an audit within the, our professional career. So that will be very useful to have good clinical records. But more than that, just handing over between optometrists and having a record of what you've done is critical. Um, there's often pressure to do consultations more quickly over time, but I'd caution against cutting corners with clinical record keeping. This is the one area you really need to uh, maintain good standards with. Um, so the very first thing you might, might want to record, well, you will want to record, is the reason for the visit. Um, that's really critical that you know well why the patient presented, um, and that will actually reflect your, your record card will need to reflect your Medicare billing as well. So... For instance, if, if you're going to bill a 913 or 10913, you need to have recorded what those new signs and symptoms, signs or symptoms were. Um, so, and, and then you need a, an appropriate management plan um, to deal with those particular signs or symptoms. Uh, your records need to be understood by the next optometrist who comes in and sees that patient. So try to avoid abbreviations that aren't universal. That, uh, and there are a lot of abbreviations that young optometrists will know now because of OCT technology and new, di new, new technologies that are coming out that nece won't necessarily be known by some of, the, some, other, some of the other optometrists that haven't been exposed to these technologies. So I would just be cautious. Um, it's pretty easy to type these days. Most, most optometrists are actually very good typers and can type things out rather than abbreviating them. Um, and we're seeing a lot more optometrists having access to electronic medical record systems. So that becomes a little bit easier. Um, make sure that you justify billing of things like visual fields. So the 10940 needs to be only, uh, can only be billed where indicated by the presence of a relevant ocular disease or suspected pathology of the visual pathways or brain. And it also needs to have a report attached, which means that somewhere in your medical record, you need to have an interpretation of the visual field results and an action plan. Also, pertinent negatives are really critical. So if you didn't record it, you didn't ask it, or if you didn't record the test result, it wasn't done. So that's really important as well. Finally, I think I mentioned a little bit earlier, but not recording something just because there wasn't room in the medical record, that there wasn't space, isn't an excuse. You need to either modify the medical record so that you can record it somewhere or find room, whether it's a notes section at the end, 
And Andrew, we've seen this a lot, haven't we, with Medicare audits in terms of not having things recorded in proper yes. places. Yes, and um, the the one where we got to a professional services review hearing, the panel hearing it, was exactly as you said, very pointed about you need to find somewhere to write the information down. It's up to you. Um, just just on that point there about the pertinent negatives, Paula, I think um, a lot of a lot of optometrists don't realise that they need to write down what they didn't find. Mm-hmm. You know, that they, they looked for floaters or, mm-hmm. or whatever and that they were not there. So the, mm-hmm. the, the lack of a presence of something also needs to be recorded, especially in um, cases of, of retinal tears or detachments. Absolutely. Um, that is an essential thing to record. Mm-hmm. Um, Audrey, while I've got you... Um, you were talking earlier on about a lack of experience with new grads, and sometimes that can can let them down. Um, what sort of problems are you you thinking about there? Andrew, there are a lot of issues where inexperience leads to trouble. The first couple of months in practice are you're on such a steep learning curve. Um, literally, when you start in your first practice, the cleaning lady will know more about how the practice runs than you do. So you you know you're learn you're, you're learning things every day. So there are all kinds of things where all sorts of areas where you can get into trouble. Billing is a huge topic and one that we'll cover off in a separate podcast because there's so much involved. Paul has touched a little bit on some of the issues there. One thing to be really careful of is non-Medicare charges and letting patients know in advance about them and why they apply. So a patient should never be hearing about costs for a test for the first time after they've had the test. So ideally, the costs involved need to be discussed at the time that the booking is made on the phone. So your receptionist is the person that should be telling them about how much a consultation will cost, if it's an out-of-pocket cost, and what other tests might be done. If you regularly do an OCT, for example, or an image, and there's a charge, let them know about that in advance. Um, I've worked in practices where patients have been informed on the phone that they will definitely be paying at least this much for the consultation, and that they will probably also be paying this much for a field test or this much for an OCT. And they really value that information. It means that not only do they not get a shock when they go up to pay the bill, but also they don't have an embarrassing situation where they don't have enough funds in their account to pay the bill. So look, many practices bulk bill and this doesn't really come up, but if there are out-of-pocket costs, make sure that the patient understands why you're doing the test and what that cost is likely to be in, in advance so that they have they have the option to to say, look, I'd rather not have that done today. It doesn't mean that you, that they're driving the test and what you do. You can give a very good reason for why you want them to have it done. And you very rarely get an argument from a patient if it's explained clearly up front. Um, in terms of where other areas where inexperience leads to trouble, um, I think dealing with conflict is something that people are, are not really well prepared for in university. Um, they... We, we're actually, we'll have another podcast coming up shortly called Staying Out of Trouble, which is one of our really effective lectures that we do with the students at, um, at the universities. And hopefully we'll be airing that one next month. But um, you will definitely come across disappointed and even angry patients uh, in practice, no matter how skillfully, no matter how skillful you are clinically. And this is often quite common at the very start of practice. You will make some classic early mistakes that will cause a patient to be disappointed or occasionally even angry. So the most important thing is to always allow the patient to fully explain their story and say exactly what happened and and really let them feel that they were listened to. But we'll give a lot more tips on that in that other podcast that I mentioned. Um, 
Look, you'll also certainly encounter patients who are suffering from depression or other, other me mental illness. And this may come out in the medications that they're taking in the medical history or may even come out in their behavior. So if you're ever in doubt about your personal safety, you can leave your door ajar if that's possible, or you can even ask your patient's permission to have a colleague sit in um, for training. And that way that you, 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 have, you have a witness present. Um, also, a common enough problem, with, especially with new grads, is they may get inappropriate comments or behavior. So we always recommend you take a no-nonsense approach by not just laughing it off, um, but by direct, redirecting them back to the eye exam. And we'll cover this area in a lot more detail in our upcoming podcast on staying out of trouble. Okay, that, that should be a very good one. Um, Paula, even someone like yourself who's been in clinical practice and practiced all over the world will occasionally come up against something you don't know. So what do you do? What do you do? Andrew, when you the longer you're in practice, the more you realize that you don't know, <laughs> <laughs> which is good. Wisdom is good. Um, but you're not expected to know everything. Um, you, you know, we, we recommend that you utilize your optometric colleagues who will sometimes have experience in areas that you don't have. Um, as well as ophthalmologists. So we have an item number 10905 just for that purpose, for referring to a colleague. Um, so sometimes it's going to be in the best interest to, of your patient to refer them. An example would be a child who needs in-office vision therapy and you can't provide it because you don't have the space or the resources or the training. So those children will greatly benefit from referral to an optometrist who is uh, working in paediatrics and has those facilities. There's a lot of other things, uh, resources you can use. So you can, you know, tap into colleagues, get on forums, um, you know, you have a mentor system. Um, tap into mentors. That's really, really handy in the first um, year of practice, uh, even ongoing. There's a lot of printed resources, particularly on the Optometry Australia website. A um, lot of resources answering a lot of questions. So if you have any questions, take the time leave your patient in the room, walk out of the room and do a little bit of research. You, patients don't mind if you leave for a few minutes to, to you know, might want to look up a textbook or get online. Um, obviously, if we if it's outside our scope of practice, we'll probably need to refer many patients to ophthalmologists. Um, but there's the, the other thing to remember is you don't have to do everything on the first visit when you're out of practice either. So you can bring them back for a second consultation if you need to. And that gives you, buys you a little bit of time to do some research, ask colleagues about what would be the best course of action. So um, book them in if that's appropriate. If it's not time, you know, there's no time restrictions. And the other one that I would say is that a lot of optometrists are using telemedicine. So they've built rapport with a local ophthalmologist who's happy for them to, to kind of send their images along and get consults, this will often save the patient having to go at all. So they'll say, oh, I'm not happy that's a chirpy, you can monitor that in your practice. Or, um, um, so that's, that's a really good way around you know, potentially even saving your patient money and saving them the time and hassle of going to an appointment by using teleophthalmology. Okay. Ophthalmology. Um, the, the only thing I'd add to that is mm -hmm. that if you are stuck, and we've certainly had colleagues do this, mm -hmm. you can ring the association. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. um, and if... Audrey and Paula are here. There you are. You've got two very experienced optometrists to talk to straight away. Mm -hmm. If they happen not to be here and it's urgent, we know every optometrist who's a member and we can always find someone that you can talk to straight away if that's necessary. Mm -hmm. We've also got a sensational team down at our national office. Again, they can provide uh, tremendous clinical resources. So there's always something there to help you if you need it. Um, I suppose because 
prescribing glasses is a lot of what we do. Um, that's where a lot of our problems arise, probably more than any other. Um, and certainly our early career colleagues are going to encounter that. What sorts of common issues come up when new grads are starting to prescribe out in the real world? Yeah, look, this is, this is a, a huge area for new grads. Um, I don't know, they don't get probably as, they don't get that much exposure to, to, to prescribing glasses or certainly seeing the impact of those glasses on the patients until they're actually out live in practice. So there's, there's, it's difficult to prepare for it. You, you can't really get that, you, you're on that learning curve, you know, no matter how much preparation you do in advance. So look, the biggest problems that we see, common problems would be just prescribing too much sill. Um, I clearly remember a patient I saw in my first week of practice, really nice presbyopic man, needed a pair of reading glasses, and I did my test and it all went really well and updated his, his, his glasses and prescribed um, 050 sill in one eye. And he was back within a week with a pair of glasses that he couldn't wear. And so no matter how much I explained it to him, talked about astigmatism, drew my little pictures of the you know, the, the football versus the rugby ball and showed him on the on the distance chart how he could see so much better with this little bit of sill. He he kept saying, my distance vision is fine. I only need a pair of reading glasses. I can't wear these. I feel like the pen's gonna roll off the table every time I put them on. I can't wear them. So that's a, a that was a lesson that I learned the hard way. Um, and so we've always got to keep in mind, how much are we changing the glasses from what they had before? So, Overplussing is a, is a related problem. It's a very similar problem. Um, we, we get it drummed into us in, in university. You know, make sure you've given enough plus, fog them, give them as much plus as you possibly can. And the truth is, most people don't need all that plus, especially in their reading glasses, especially if they're basically emetropic and they don't wear distance glasses. Giving them too much plus in their readers is going to cause problems. So when we're measuring them, we often measuring them at 40 centimeters, but then when they're reading, they're reading things online at maybe 50 centimeters or more. And also when, when they're in good light, their small pupil will give them this greater depth of field than they'll get in the consulting room. So as a general rule of thumb, I wouldn't increase the ad by more than about plus 050, unless it's been years since they've been in and they're really struggling. So the other, the other thing that caused lots of problems are, is the prescribing of multifocals and task glasses. And really the prescribing and the dispensing of this type of glasses are very closely linked. So there has to be a really good communication between you as the optometrist and your dispenser about what you're trying to achieve. So they choose the right type of task glasses for the patient. There are all kinds of multifocals now. There are ones that you can use to see your computer around your reading or um, they're not necessarily the classic traditional multifocal of distance, intermediate and near. And finding the right solution for a patient is, a, is a, a detailed conversation with the dispenser. And it's very difficult, that can't occur if they take their prescription elsewhere. And it's a very, um, it's a modern phenomenon that people will have their test somewhere, ask for a copy of the prescription and take it somewhere else. So um, this will be the topic of a whole other podcast, but um, explaining to patients the, the close relationship between prescribing and dispensing is really important. And, um, you know, you can issue your refractive findings to the patient without necessarily issuing detailed directions on what type of glasses they're going to get, which will then, you know, Chinese whispers get mistranslated with a dispenser at another, another practice and you end up sometimes having to remake glasses that were not intended, they're not being prescribed as you intended. So that's definitely an area where uh, young optometrists get themselves into trouble. 
I would say as a sort of a general guide, be very sensitive to the wearability of glasses and not just the clinical accuracy of your refraction. So 2020 is not always 20 happy. Good line to finish on. Um, to complement this podcast, uh, we're currently putting together another ebook called The First 90 Days to support you through the early months of your optometry career. Um, that will shortly be available to download free for all association members, including students, from the New South Wales ACT pages of the website, which is optometry.org.au. Uh, once that's live, we'll send a link out to all newly graduated members. Um, if you have any trouble finding it, make sure you give us a call at uh, the New South Wales or National Office or send us an email for a direct link and we'll send you the, uh, the link to that resource. Um, so to Audrey and Paula, thank you for being part of this today and sharing your knowledge. We'll be back in a few weeks with episode six of Optometry Talks, and that's going to be the one of staying out of trouble, uh, which is also geared towards early career optometrists in particular, and should be compulsory reading, uh, compulsory listening for anyone in practice. Thanks again for your time. This episode of Optometry Talks was brought to you compliments of Optometry New South Wales ACT. 